This is the Portland Real Estate Podcast, your number one place for anything you need to know about the Portland real estate market, along with in-depth interviews from our local real estate industry experts. Now, without further ado, here are our hosts, Tucker Merrihue from TTM Development Company and Steve Nassar from Premier Property Group. All right, everybody, welcome back. This is episode 52 of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. We've been off for a couple weeks, but that's because we actually have real businesses we're trying to run in addition to recording this show. But we're back. We're excited to be back. Steve, welcome back to the mic. Hey, good to be back on the show. We've got our best of masters edition here. Joe Fistolo is with us. Welcome back, Joe. Thank you. I think hey. we've got a, a number of good topics this week to kind of dive into. We've we've left a, a few weeks here for uh, the best of masters to kind of marinate and have some some good topics kind of rise to the top here. But uh, why don't you kick us off, Steve, and talk about our first one? You got it. And by the way, Joe, I do miss miscaption this. <laughs> We're gonna think of something else to keep you guys occupied uh, next I'm month. Waiting. I'm waiting. Who won, by the way? Did somebody win the uh, the contest? Uh, yeah, a gal by the name of uh, Jenny Tallis, who was pretty consistent with replying to just about every uh, caption, and they were usually uh, kind of hit it from a different angle. So she is the winner. That was the last, awesome. The last one you posted was like somebody smelling a bunch of armpits. I thought that was pretty funny. But. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> On the plus side, I do have an extra half hour every day, Joe. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Okay, moving right into it. Let me introduce the first one, guys. The first one was posted by Andrea Blackwell. It was posted on September 12th. It's a pretty short one. It said, hey, masters, I'm taking a poll for a class I'm teaching. How many of the masters set business hours? And if so, what are they? What is the latest you answer your phone? Joe Fastola, you want to go into that one? Sure. Well, it's not as structured as she probably wants. I kind of have my own schedule of when I work and when I don't work, but it's not written down. I don't have an outgoing message on my voicemail that defines my hours, but it's pretty simple. I work when I'm needed. If I'm negotiating a counteroffer or something and it goes till 11 at night, I'm working. And if it's dinner time and I'm with my family and it's not important, I let it go to voicemail. What's interesting is, you know, when you're, you're self-employed, people think, oh, man, you could wake up at 10 o'clock and you could work a solid three-hour day if you choose. But they don't realize that when you're self-employed, there's no, like, quitting bell. It's not like the Flintstones where you pull the cord and the pterodactyl screams and everyone runs to their cars and you're done. It's like you can have something that pops up at 8 p.m., 9 p.m., and oftentimes I'm burning the midnight oil. So I basically schedule my work hours on kind of as an, an as-needed basis. And just as I schedule my work, I also schedule my free time, like when I have a, a date night with my wife or obligation with my daughter. I mean, I schedule that too. And that's, that's my time. I'm just not accessible. And th- the final thing is with technology, if I'm enjoying a glass of wine and watching TV with my wife and it's nine o'clock and a client texts me, it's just too easy to send them a short text back and get in touch with them. It knows that I'm always kind of there. 
but I do schedule hours, but it changes day to day. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. You what know, about you, I, well, I mean, you, you work a lot, right? I mean, you're, you're kind of a machine when it comes to working, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I'd say work ethic is one of my strongest traits. That said, I mean, I do have a team here now today, and I'm blessed in the sense that that is able to allow me to leverage my time. I can shut down at times, but nobody goes into this business with a team on day one and has buyers, agents, listing agents, administrative people that are answering phone calls. So you have to go into the business with the realization that you are going to work when clients need you to work. And oh, by the way, that is usually off hours, evenings, weekends, when they aren't at their jobs that pay the bills and will help them be able to afford a house or buy a house. In, in going through this post, it was interesting to me. I felt like it was about 50-50, maybe even more so skewed towards the people that do take time off and shut down. So about 50% were like, yeah, here's my hours. And here's when I put my little, I'm closed for business sign up and and ha- turn people away. And and I, I joke a little bit. They actually, some of them were very proactive in that regards. And I can see where often it does work very well for them. And then there was the other 50% that I felt were kind of along the lines of mindset I am and Joe is, which is, look, I mean, we can try to do what you want to shape out that schedule. But when duty calls, duty calls, and you got to get to work. I've often been annoyed in the past. I got to be honest, when I call agents and they have that little voicemail that says my hours are this or that and I take this day off and you've got pending business, it's urgent. And I I sense that in this thread. Oftentimes, you know, they will still call you back. They were trying to set that expectation for the non-urgent stuff, but this is urgent and so they will call you back. When they don't and it is urgent, it is really annoying that they have that mindset that this can wait when really, I mean, we've got, there's multiple parties and this is a very large transaction. So, you know, the other thing I, w- I want to say about this and kind of the last thing is like, look, people along those lines, I'll say it again. We chose this career. We didn't have to. There were other jobs out there that absolutely let you shut down. And it's kind of like Joe said, I love the analogy of the, the Flintstone t- pterodactyl going off. And I don't take it necessarily as being like, this makes our career, you know, a bad career or it makes it a less than desirable career. I think we have a wonderful career and I think we all are very fortunate to do what we do. And to put that into perspective, I mean, you know, if somebody's a comedian or a musician, and I mean like Coldplay, I mean like, you know, John Mayer, a high high dollar well-paid musician. Can you imagine them saying, I've kind of hit the big time now. You know what? I'm going to start having my concerts on Tuesdays at one o'clock. That way I can be out of there by five o'clock and be home with the family. I mean, that's not the career they chose. They're going to be playing music on Friday and Saturday night. And the same would apply to a comedian, you know, Jerry Seinfeld. He's not playing the Moda Center at Thursday at 10 a.m. so he can get out of there and, and have an early day off. So same with us. It's not necessarily something that makes our career a terrible choice. It just is the nature of it. We need to be working when others aren't. And that does oftentimes require us to show up evenings and weekends or at least answer the phone. Tucker, I think you make a good point. But I mean, you know, the reality is we're in the real estate business, right? And so we're all self-employed to some extent, some more than others. I mean, of course, if you work for a brokerage, you've got the overarching 
you know, employer or whether you're set up as an independent contractor, whatever it is, you know, you have a place of business that maybe you don't pay the lease on or the overhead, but you're still self-employed. You're operating as a, a self-employed independent contractor or a realtor or loan officer, or in my case, a home builder, you know, or, or developer. And so it's all under that same self-employed umbrella. You know, people to me that put up business hours when you're in the world of self-employment are setting themselves up for a failure and they're setting themselves up to annoy people like Steve and probably people like Joe when you have to call and deal with urgent business and, you know, they're choosing to be in the employee mindset world when really they chose to be in the entrepreneur or self-employed world. And so, you know, I know there's people that do it, but it annoys me as well. And I, I remember when, we, when I first started in the loan biz back in the day, same as you, Steve. And I got my first call on a Sunday. I was out at PIR, like at a, watching a race or something. And I got a call on a Sunday and I thought to myself, why would this realtor call me on Sunday? And, you know, fast forward, obviously now I have a different perspective on it, but you know, at the time I was like, why, who would talk business on Sunday? You know? And it's <laughs> like, you know, for me, it never ends. That bell never rings, Joe, you know, the pterodactyl, it never goes off, you know, but that's the other side of being self-employed. I can take a day or an hour or do whatever I want if I want to. But at the same time, there's no end of the workday. There's no start of the workday. You know, it all kind of blends together. And I mean, that's the 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 other side of the self-employment sword, I guess. But at the same time, that comes with a lot of freedom. And like you said, you can schedule time with your wife or your daughter, Joe, whenever you, you know, you need to. But on the other end of it, you know, you might be working at having a conversation at 930 at night if it requires it. Right. I mean, that's just that's being self-employed. You are there when you need to be. Now, of course, I pencil time for myself, too. I go play ball, you know, hoops three times a week. And obviously, I'm not picking up my phone and dealing with stuff then. But if I'm done at 615 and something needs to be done, I make some callbacks and do some things, you know. So I think that for people to, uh, you know, think that they can have these predetermined business hours in the world of self-employment, they're just putting a square peg in a round hole. I think that there comes a point where financially, you you know, if you've got FU money, you can do whatever you want, right? But until you get there, you know, you need to be accessible and you need to be good at your job. And that part of that is being accessible when people need to talk to you, I think. And I'll say one last thing along those lines. The people, typically speaking, the people that go into business because they want self-employment, because they want flexible hours, are usually the ones that don't last <laughs> self-employed and have those hours. They, they're pretty quickly punching a clock somewhere because they couldn't, they weren't self-driven enough to do what they needed to do. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a good point because there are no hours when you're self-employed, especially when you're starting out. I mean, it's a, it's a 24 seven grind to get your business up, you know, and, and running. When I meet with new realtors, you know, and, and I'm trying to put myself in their position and, and what are those activities they should be doing on a daily basis to be successful? One of the first things I say is set that alarm clock. If you go into this business with a mindset that I'm going to, you know, like we all do on our days off, right? When that special day we all love where you just lay in bed and when you're, you kind of open one eye and you're like, okay, I think it's time to get up. If you, if that's how they operate day in and day out, because they are self-employed and because there isn't a boss cracking a whip, they are going to have a rough, rough awakening. So set that alarm clock the earlier, the better and hit the ground running and, you know, be your own boss and be the hardest boss you could be. They say real estate is a well-paying, hard job, and it's a really poor-paying, easy job. So <laughs> you have to get up, and you got to make those calls. And at the end of it, you know, we're more accessible than people's doctors and lawyers. You just got to calibrate your own business that you get back to the people and the times of need. Yeah, love that saying, Joe. Let's Agreed. go on to the next one, guys. This one was posted by Justin Green. It's a little bit of a long one, but I'll, I'll kind of skim it. 
October 7th, pay reductions. I think this is a great topic. I don't think we've actually had this one on here. I know this is a subject has been discussed before, and we counter regularly. This one has me tossing and turning at night on principle of how I grow my business, not the money. I have one of those clients that does not listen, repeats things three times before he hears me. We are at the end of a rather long but smooth buy and sale, and he's a seller. He's been very happy with the results, and I'm sure to inform him how good he's making out on this move. Last night starts arguing over percentages and how much more business I am doing. Therefore, I should take a discount. I've not had someone ask for a discount because I'm doing more business yet. I know this person is just looking for more. He is one of those, it's never good enough kind. I'm holding my line, just throwing this out there for additional advice on how you have handled this. Many people need to see your backbone and he knows I won't back down. Generally, I continue the relationship and grow the business from closed to happy clients. So he goes on a little bit more, but I think that gives us a gist. It's a seller who is asking for a reduction in commissions, and it sounds like there's not a justified reason for it. And and that's debatable. If there's ever a justified reason for it, we can talk about that. But the seller seems to be having a smooth transaction. Joe, I loved your posts on here, including your video. (laughs) Tell us your thoughts. If, as well, if there's a doubt. <laughs> so in real estate, my philosophy is the win-win philosophy. Like I made the analogy before, like going out for you know Chinese food. At the end, everybody gets a cookie, right? And in a perfect world, you want the other broker to be satisfied. You want yourself to be satisfied and the seller and the buyer. Well, if you dig into the root of this post, Justin said that he's given – exceptional service, just VIP service to this guy. And at the 11th hour, this guy wants him to reduce his fee simply because he wants more money. Well, that's not a win-win scenario. You know, that's like a poker game. One person can, can win only if everybody else loses, right? So this isn't a poker game. And if you do outstanding service, you should get paid what's, what's fair and reasonable When I roll up my sleeves and dig in with clients, they become a part of my life during that time. And, you know, I'm I'm involved in a business sense. I'm involved in an emotional sense. And, you know, I reserve the right to make my own decisions if if I'm dealing with some elderly people or the money's tight on both sides or there's an extreme health issue or there's some large unforeseen repair that cost 10 times more than we thought. And I want to kind of stop the bleeding and, and maybe help out a little to get it done. Those are good reasons for me. From the business standpoint of it, taking a little bit less of something is better than getting 100% of something. Now, reasons why I wouldn't reduce my fee is if someone says, hey, we're moving to Seattle, the cost of living is more in Seattle, we need more money. Or I always wanted to net this amount, or I feel my house is worth this amount. We all know that it is what it is, right? Market value is the highest obtainable price in a reasonable amount of time. And if this person, his his caliber is always above that, is what it sounds like, never satisfied, always wants more, and says, hey, I'm not making enough money on this. You need to reduce your fee so I get more money. That is not a good reason. And that's why we have contracts. And everybody has their own negotiation style. And I'll listen to it. But if it's not a good reason, I'm not going there. And, and you know, I've heard people say, gosh, you know, you sold 
our house and you had a certain commission like 10 years ago, and now we have a house twice the value of that house and your commission's still the same. But it just goes to show if you sell someone a house three years ago, they make $100,000 on it and you sell it again for them today. It's not like realtors share in the equity. You know, we don't share in the appreciation. We don't share in the in the downtimes either. If there's lots of money in repairs, I mean, that's not our fault either. So for me to reduce my fee simply based on somebody's grumpy and wants to earn more money is not a good reason. But I have found reasons where I would take a little bit less just out of the situation. I love it. I love it. I agree, Joe. I mean, look, we've all done it. And, you know, anyone that takes a hard line approach and says, I will never, never, ever do it, I think is being unrealistic. And, you know, I just don't think that's realistic. That said, you have to be really careful here in in this arena. You have to view that as a different bank account than what the client is operating out of. Think about it as your own like trust account, almost like in the real estate world is untouchable as that account is, you kind of have to have that mindset with yours because it does become a really slippery slope. If you start to go into that account, the client will, they will run with it. I'll even say the earlier in the transaction that you do this, the more likely it is that they're going to come back for more. So where I've done this typically is at that last leg of negotiations with repairs, especially if we goofed up somehow or we feel some kind of onus or like Joe said, I mean, maybe and, and maybe legitimately we're just like, look, we know this is brutal. Here's where, where we can help you out. You can be pretty confident that if you do that, knock on wood, barring a, a surprise with the appraisal, there can't be an opportunity for them to come and ask for more. If you go into the early part of negotiations, like when you first get the offer on price, I'm really hardcore about not doing it there because I know if I do it there, guess who's coming back with hat in hand looking for another handout during the repair negotiations. So we really, really try to avoid this. It's an absolute last resort play. 99.9% of the time, we never go there, but there are those unique situations where as you said, Joe, anything is better than nothing. And so, you know, if you have to give up a, a little bit at the end sometimes to make it work, so be it. And there's also times where, you know, I view my time as pretty valuable. And if there's a, an 11th hour squabble over a couple hundred bucks, I might rather than <laughs> make the several phone calls back and forth, pinging all these people. Sometimes it just makes more sense to give that up and move on and focus on the highest and best use of our time, which would be getting the next transaction into escrow or, or getting at that transaction. You know, one thing that was not touched on here, it's a whole nother conversation on a very similar subject is realtors asking for reductions. And, and I think that takes it to a whole new level because clients, they aren't the professionals we are. And I think we as realtors have to have that level of professionalism that we really respect even more so this conversation with each other, especially in seeing all these responses. I hate it when a realtor, you know, lightheartedly brings that up, especially early on. It's just, it's just not a, it's not a cool thing. And I've got some wonderful team members who are pretty passionate about this as well. And, and really 
hold stick to their guns in this regards. Again, the caveat there is if we goofed up. If somebody goofed up in this process, if us as realtors drop the ball somewhere and there's a thousand bucks that was not notated, I'm not coming up with the exact scenario, but we all know how that sometimes happens. That's a different situation. And that's kind of like the punishment for the little slip up. But just willy nilly, just to say, hey, let's make this deal work and, and to start throwing money out there. That's just not a good and healthy way to do business. And it, it's a good way to really struggle in this industry. Tucker, you know, I'll kind of take it from the seller's position. How about that? Since <laughs> I don't actually list people's houses for them. But I will say there was a house that you listed for me, Steve, a while back. And, you know, we sold it actually before it actually hit the market. And at one point you said you almost felt bad for the, you know, making the money that you made listing and selling it. But you know, honestly, it never crossed my mind to even ask you for a reduction on it because, you know, in that particular case, you know, we did well in the house, you know, you did a great thing by bringing us the deal. So there were these, there were a number of reasons why it just, it wouldn't have been good business to even ask for it. But on a, not the developer builder, you know, house flipper side and more just the, you know, the general seller, you know, you have to look at it two ways, right? You've got your person that uses a realtor every two, three, four, five, seven years to sell their house, buy a new house, whatever it is. And then you've got people that maybe like me that we sell 15, 20, 25 houses in a year and we have the same realtor that does it. Right. So we're kind of the Costco. Right. So we get the Costco discount. That's the way I look at it. But if you have clients that are only using you once every, you know, two, three, four years or so, you know, it's just not good business to expect that you should get a discount that, you know, maybe a, a high volume client would potentially get. And so some people think that using somebody twice in their lifetime is high volume. So they try and justify that to to get a price reduction out of you. So, you know, I just think that it's it's a conversation that should be had at the very beginning and whatever is agreed upon at the beginning. That's the terms, right? Like Joe said that you've got a contract. That's usually the the fork in the road where you have that conversation that some people are uncomfortable having. Other people are you know plenty comfortable having. I'm sure you two are plenty comfortable having that conversation because as you know, not all realtors are created equal. And if you're good at your job, it's very easy for you to justify what it is that you charge. You know, you could pay somebody else the same thing that's horrible at their job and it costs you a lot more stress and time and ultimately probably money in your negotiations or whatever it may be. So, you know, I think that you just have to, if you have an issue with it, address it at the beginning. And at that point, it's water under the bridge as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, I think that to go into the 11th hour, unless, of course, what Steve said, where maybe you chip in a few hundred bucks or 500 bucks to get a repair done just to put the damn thing to bed because you want to strangle everybody on both sides of the phone. Sometimes it's good for your health to just give up a little to get a lot in return. And, you know, I've been there. We've done that on the loan side back in the day when you used to be able to give broker credits. There were a lot of times where I just said, screw it here, I'll pay the damn appraisal or whatever it is, right? Let's just close this damn thing. And, you know, that that makes business sense sometimes. But to have somebody just come to you and, and say, well, I'm not making enough money or this or that uh, late into the game. I just don't think it's good business. I just don't think it should be done. Yeah, you brought up a good point, Tucker. I have had those. And I think we can all relate those transactions where the house sells quickly you brought this up in your in your situation. I mean, we hadn't even hit the MLS. I believe she saw it on Zillow and we hadn't even hit the MLS. And here we had this full price cash offer closing in like a week, which was a, a sweetheart situation. But sometimes sellers do. You didn't do this, but sometimes sellers do come at you with, well, you didn't hardly have to work for this one. Look how easily it's sold. And they start requesting a commission reduction. What you have to do 
in those situations is you have to say, look, there's a flip side to this scenario that you're not seeing. Yes, you're giving me this commission and it is selling quickly. But for every one of these, there's many others that we list for months and months and months and sometimes don't even close at all and lose marketing costs and hard costs for listing the property, not to mention our time. So the sweetheart ones help to offset and you know make us whole in the grand scheme of things. I think it's really important in those conversations to bring that up and, and have that conversation with them, even though they, they'll never quite fully get it. If they're asking you for reductions, don't expect them to have a light bulb go off and go, oh my gosh, you're right. I don't want your money. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. moving on to the next one, this one was posted by... This is a very interesting one too. I think everybody probably has dealt with this to some extent if you've been in the business for any length of time that's for sure especially in the beginning i would say yes well and this is a newer agent and and this is yeah martha grover what she says here is hello realtors i am a new realtor and i'm seeking advice how do you deal with the emotional fallout when a friend promises to use you as their realtor and then changes their mind slash makes you interview or even worse when they aren't upfront or honest with you. Tucker, you want to go first on this one? Yeah, I'll relate it to the mortgage days because, you know, obviously I, I don't try and do business with friends anymore because it, it can be challenging. Friends or family it can be challenging at times. There's no way around it. I mean, it's going to be a little challenging. It could change your relationship, especially with friends moving forward, if not dealt with honestly and properly. But I had people in the past that used other folks that, you know, I figured they wouldn't, but they did. The thing that annoyed me the most, and at the end of the day, I understand, you know, especially on the loan side, people were shopping for rate and fees, and sometimes they get fixated on things that really don't mean a lot, but it, in their mind, it becomes a big deal and enough of a reason to use somebody over somebody else. The biggest thing and the biggest issue I had were people that weren't honest, right? Like that said, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll use you, or, you know, you have that kind of good faith conversation. You don't, they don't give you any reason to think that they're shopping you or just kind of shining you on. And then they quit returning your calls and you find out that eventually they use somebody else. To me, that's the worst. You know, I can take it if somebody says, well, you know, I just decided to go with them. Okay, whatever. That sucks. It usually doesn't happen on the back end of your career, like where you guys are at. But on the front end, it's mainly because they probably just, at least on the real estate side, they just don't have the confidence in your abilities yet for whatever reason. And so they feel like maybe they, they have more confidence in somebody else or you know, I don't know, there could be uh, some underlying personal issues you just don't know about. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think that it happens. But the worst would definitely be when people are just not honest with you. I think that's when it can change a friendship forever. And, you know, obviously that that's happened with me in the past. And I would just suggest people are just honest about it and straight up. What about you, Steve? What do you think? I think it's an interesting, interesting post. And it got a lot of traction, 48 comments, which is which is right up there with as, as many as you see on Masters in general. There's some great comments here. I, I, I loved what a lot of people had to say. Like one of the first comments was, well, why shouldn't you be interviewed? They're selling their most expensive asset just because you're a friend or a family member. Do you think that gives you the the, the green light that you get to practice on that? Does well, that yeah, mean, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, somebody else made a great point like, hey, what if your friend worked in a really crappy restaurant? Would you go there three times a week? and endure their terrible food just because they're a good friend? How is this that different? 
I've seen this go both ways. When I got into the mortgage industry in 2003, a couple of my first refis, this was during that amazing refi boom that that really launched that market. A couple of my first refis was my dad and my brother. And I was pretty fortunate to have those. I, I practiced on them. Obviously, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> you're like, <laughs> Order and appraise what, huh? So I was fortunate that way. But I've also seen other friends and other scenarios, and there were people in my life that were like, "Uh, I'm going to sit back and kind of let you do your own thing. And if you turn out to be pretty successful or or know what you're doing, maybe we'll, we'll talk then. And I've seen a lot of that. So I think... Friends and family can go two ways. They can, you know, and and probably the closer the relationship, the more likely they are to be the jump in and let you do it way. If you start to get into other relationships, they'll oftentimes they they don't want to go there because they are afraid you are going to screw it up. And they're going to be sitting there not only with a bad transaction, which is probably the least of their worries, mind you, but they're going to have a bad relationship now. I mean, and they're risking a lot there. So. I don't think you should take it personal. I think you should not be surprised if early on you have to prove yourself with strangers and people you don't know and then watch those friends and family members come running when they they're like, "Wow, that that, that person's doing pretty well." You know, I we'd be fortunate to be able to work with them. You know, I will also say along those lines, a true professional has strangers who choose to work with them. If a person's business model is, I will always work with friends and family, and that's all I work with, I start to worry that you are nothing more than a multi-level marketing realtor or lender or whatever the profession is. And those multi-level companies, I've never been a big fan of them. There's a million gadgets and widgets and products that they sell, and, and most of them are crap. And the reason you know they're crap is because... If they weren't crap, they'd be on a store shelf where the non-crap resides typically. You can't tell me those companies know something that Coke, Pepsi, and General Motors and every other Fortune 500 company doesn't know, which is the best way to put promote a product is on the open market, not through friends and family. The subpar products, they need to exploit a relationship. They know that this product really can't stand on its own legs, so I need a friend, someone's friend or family to force it on them. And so let's be careful not to do that with our profession. As you're new in the business, there's nothing wrong. I think it's a great way. In fact, when we talk to new agents, you know, call your sphere, call your friends and family. I think that's wonderful. But don't think, especially as you get further in your career and you have other avenues, that really shouldn't be your only way of getting business. And if it is, I, I think you need to be cognizant of the of the fact that maybe you're not doing something right it's the biggest compliment you'll ever have is when a, a true stranger interviews with several people and chooses you and i think that's when you can start patting yourself on the back and saying look i'm starting to get some legs and i'm i'm actually becoming a true professional yeah and and then the last great comments on here was just have thick skin it's one of the hardest things to it's easy to say it's hard to do but man you got to do it in this business you got to realize that every 10 people you're going to talk to, seven of them are going to go away. The better you are and the better your your service and, and how you promote yourself and your marketing and, and, and the more established you are, the better that ratio is going to be. When you're brand new, it might be every 10 people you talk to, you're going to get one. 
when you're really, really experienced and, and established, it might be, you know, half are going to use you. There is nobody out there that gets every listing. There is nobody out there that gets every buyer. And I mean, and when I say nobody, I mean, I'm talking, go look at your Bravo TV shows and your, your, you know, celebrity realtors on these, you know, on those shows, there's, there's still, no one's batting a thousand. So to think that the rest of us are ever going to have a chance at even close to that is not anywhere near possible. So do get really, really good. I feel, you know, one thing I've always felt is when you have somebody say, no, I'm not using you you know, learn from it as quickly as you can, but then forget it. And then when you do have somebody that says they are going to use you, in other words, success, learn from it as quickly as you can, but then forget it. And and by that, I mean, you know, don't gloat in that success and go, oh, I just got a listing today. I don't have to do anything else today. Learn from it, forget it, move on and go get that next listing and act as if you, so always kind of be bringing yourself back to center when you're doing really well, you know, trick yourself into thinking you're not. And when you're doing really bad, trick yourself into doing thinking you're doing pretty good. Joe, what do you got? Well, nothing more than what you say, but I might dig in a little bit more about the reasons why this thing happens and maybe to find a positive outlook on how to move forward from it. So first and foremost, nobody owes you their business. Just because you're friends with them or family with them, nobody owes you their business. And if you're on your A-game, competition is healthy. Have them interview three other people. If you're on your A-game, those people's interview process is just going to make you look better. So this is, in most cases, you know, real estate buying and selling. It's someone's largest material asset in most cases, and they want to protect their their family. They want to do the best they can. And so you have to look at it. I mean, let's say you need a quadruple bypass and your nephew just graduated medical school and he's doing heart surgeries and you could be the first one <laughs> or that gray haired guy who's done 200,000 quadruple bypasses that has this fabulous reputation. I mean, your largest material asset and the importance of your health aren't very far apart. So what drives people in real estate? Well, life doesn't slow down for real estate. There's big indicators that someone's going to make a move. So in your life, if you're having babies or getting married or you get promoted, those are reasons to move. On the flip side of that, so is death and divorce and getting laid off. Those are also indicators of making a move. If you're friends and family with someone, they may not necessarily want you to come in and find out that after all these years, they're finally getting a divorce or someone's ill. They don't want you to know their finances. I mean, people are private and there's people that don't go to their friends who are doctors because they don't want their friend to see them naked. You know, it, it's so these are all pretty valid reasons, but this is kind of new people problems. Like when you're long in the tooth and calloused over like we are, you don't get business. There's a four letter word for it and it's next. You know, when you're brand new and have dreams and aspirations, you you falsely convince yourself that everyone you talk to about real estate is a future listing or a future buyer. Gosh, when I was new in the business, I talked to this 
guy at the, you know, two blocks away. I talked to him every week and I gave him pumpkins and flags on 4th of July and wrote him handwritten notes. And gosh, one day I was driving to work. I drive down there and I see a competitor sign in the yard. <laughs> and I got to tell you, I'd wake up in the middle of the night with sweats and I would curse this guy's name. But, you know, if he thought I was capable and honest and ethical and the best person for the job, I would have got the job. So it doesn't matter if you're friends or family or, or who you talk to. And then, you know, also the hypocrisy of it all, do each and every, does each and every realtor out there use all of your friends for business? Is your really best friends and best family, do you use them for insurance and as your CPA and doctor and caterer? Probably not. And then what do you do? It, it seems like when the market gets good, everybody becomes a realtor, right? You know, school teachers during the summer and hairdressers and Uber drivers and you name it. Well, chances are your friends or family know a handful of realtors, parents at your kid's school, people at the church, you know, they know quite a few people and you can't win them all all the time. So you know, get calloused over, hone your presentation. If they love you for your job, be damn good at it. Be better than everyone else, whether you're their best friend or their enemy. If if you're the best person for the job and they really don't like you, they'll probably still hire you because they're worried about their own well-being and finances. So nobody owes you anything. I know sometimes it sucks. I too have had family right deals on the hoods of cars at an open house and it sucks, but you know what? I'm not letting it take up real estate in my mind. So the moment <laughs> that thing's done, I say next. That's I think awesome. that's, I love that story about the flags. And the pumpkin. <laughs> no. yeah. It's, I mean, cause everybody's had that story to some extent, right? Whether or not you're giving them flags and pumpkins and no, I mean, everybody's had that guy. And I think it's good the way that you have a perspective on it now, of course, when we're newer, that perspective is much different, right? But it, it changes with time as, as we become more calloused and cynical. <laughs> he might have thought you just wanted a good old-fashioned mandate with him. Yeah, well, maybe. maybe you know? Could be. Yeah. I mean, this was you probably know, back in, uh, you know, either. it was less socially acceptable, right? So, you know. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, why is this guy writing me handwritten notes? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, you know, one last thing I'll say real quick on that subject, especially to the newer agents out there, this will probably blow them away and, I almost don't want to say it, but here and now today in my career, I have to say sometimes when I'm cringed the most with a new client, it's when they are friends and family. And it, and that's for the sheer reason that in my business, as busy as my team is and I am, I'm able to leverage myself tremendously with strangers. You know, I can talk to them up front 20, 30 minutes on the phone, maybe show one house, maybe not even any maybe go to a listing appointment and then I'm handing them off to somebody and that handoff sticks really nicely and, and they're thrilled with the setup. A friend or family member calls me and I just, I immediately realize, okay, this is going to take a lot of my time over the next 45 days. I'm going to be the go-to person for them. So it's kind of an interesting spin on that in my world anyway, that I appreciate and there, there you have it. So friends and family are paying in your ass is what you're telling me, huh? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I don't do much unless, business with friends unless and Unless they listen to podcasts, they're the, then they're the ones that I want to have call me, and I absolutely want to work with you and take care of you, and I love you. 
Hey, last one, guys. Let's do real quick on this one. We're almost at the end of our time, but what the heck? Let's do it. So this one was by Robin Grimm. Okay, Masters, what's your take on this? House sells to a buyer with an FHA loan. RMLS listing says all stainless steel, kitchen, freestanding, stove, refrigerator. Offer asks for refrigerator to be included in the sale. Buyer takes possession and stove is gone. Agent and seller say they didn't ask for it. FHA appraisal signs off with stainless steel kitchen and won't loan without a stove. Should the stove have been left or should it have been asked for in the original offer? Let me kind of summarize here what Robin's saying. She's basically saying that in RMLS, all appliances were listed. They wrote the offer only asking for the refrigerator. The sellers removed the stove. It was clearly there when the FHA appraiser was there. But then after the day of funding and closing, when the buyer takes possession, it wasn't there. And the seller is saying, too bad, so sad, you didn't ask for it. I think we've all kind of been here, done that. But Joe, let's hear your opinion on this. Okay. Well, this is the fourth topic of the day, so I'll be quick. And it comes down to two things. Be specific and wiggle. So what I mean by that, when I walk through a house, people think I'm kind of mentally challenged because I'm wiggling everything. I'm wiggling mirrors above the fireplace, mirrors in the bathroom, shelves, the microwave, cabinets. I'm making notations of potted trees. I am determining what's a fixture and what's not a fixture. What's hung like a picture frame? What's a fixture versus personal property? There's nothing worse than showing up to a house and that Japanese maple that was in the backyard that was a focal point was actually in a great big pot and they took it with them. So our job is to identify what is a fixture or what seems to be personal property. Going back to be specific, our job is to also identify everything specifically. You don't say, oh, what's included, all major appliances. Well, that's not specific. Then you're in a debate over semantics. What's a major appliance? Is a toaster a major appliance? Is a, is a freestanding microwave a major appliance? So after you did the wiggle test, go in and specifically say refrigerator in kitchen so you don't get the avocado green, you know, circa 1984 garage refrigerator with the rust stains on the door. You say stainless steel, LG, refrigerator, in kitchen, and as seen on, you know, October 5th, 2016. Take a picture of it. Maybe get a serial number. Get specific. <laughs> you want to – you, you're trying to refute any possible brain damage in the future if they say, well, you said leave refrigerator. We left the refrigerator. And then you can pull out your addendum and say, well – Here's the addendum that says things to stay are in exhibit A, picture of the refrigerator in kitchen as identified in writing and as by the picture. And you identify and whether you think something's not a fixture in personal property, if you're unsure, write it in anyway, right? It goes by the written word. You can have an onslaught of stuff in the listing, but if it's not in the earnest money, it's not included. They could say, you know, we have a, a freestanding range and a freestanding refrigerator, and it's included in the interior stuff of RMLS. But if if you don't do your job and put it in that earnest money, making it 
clear so a third grader can understand it. It's not part of the transaction. So I always try and fall over backwards being abundantly specific. Even if I'm incredibly redundant, I put it in, I put in what each appliance is, where it is, as I saw it on this day and as is condition. And I even take photos. And so if uh, the shit hits the fan, so to speak, I'm well documented. And it's not Joe cracking his wallet for a $2,000 fridge. It's those sellers bringing it back. So wiggle and be specific. Love it. Love it. I'll try to be quick, almost as quick as you, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, same thing. You know, here's the thing, guys. RMLS is not a contract. It is not the binding agreement between the buyer and the seller. This was repeated throughout the post. It is an indicator. This is this wasn't in there, but this is kind of my take on it. It's an indicator of what you can ask for. It's also an indicator of what the price could be, right? Gary Taylor, love your comment. Second comment on here. He gave a scenario. His was specific. You know, okay, three hundred thousand dollar house. They offer two ninety, and then they're mad because not everything that was in the RMLS listing isn't included. Well, you didn't give the RMLS listing price either, so you have to put it in the contract. I agree. Most people have been burned by this. I have early on in my career. And you only usually if you're a good agent, you're only burned once. And Robin Grimm, hopefully this is the last time you ever have to deal with this because you do pay attention after this. But yeah, the the MLS tells you what can be asked for, what the sellers are willing to part with. You still got to put it in writing. You can I have done this and I think we do this a fair amount. We will reference in our offer, all appliances as listed in RMLS. Oftentimes we'll put as previewed on such and such date and listed in RMLS. If you do that, then you can be pretty confident by referencing RMLS and by taking a printout of that, you can acknowledge when they accept that offer that everything that was listed there is now included. But there's arguments to get really, really specific. I think you can go Personally, I think you can go a little too far if you're taking pictures and 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 writing down serial numbers. Not saying you should, but but it could. It, it, depending on how many offers you're writing, I mean, you could you could spend three hours in that house and then realize that you didn't even get it. But there's some good best practices, and and I love it. Tucker, what do you got to add? I think you guys hit the nails on the head. But uh, if you want it, ask for it, right? And, uh, you know, no's are free. So just ask away. That's kind of my advice, I would say. And I, I've never actually stripped a, a range out of a house that we've sold just for the record. So <laughs> I think that's a little bit shady, but people do it, obviously. So uh, if, if you want it, ask for it. That would be my suggestion. So love it. Cool. Well, I think we covered a lot of ground today. We had uh, some great topics. Joe, thanks for joining us again. We uh, enjoy it as always. And uh, Steve and I will be back next week, probably with a uh, market action report. Talk about what's going on out there in the uh, fall market. So until then, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks again for listening to our show and make sure to tune in next week for another great episode of the Portland Real Estate Podcast.